Section 31 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. Section 31. Selected Excerpts by Henry Ward Beecher. Bookstores and Books from Star Papers Nothing marks the increasing wealth of our times, and the growth of the public mind toward refinement, more than the demand for books. Within ten years the sale of common books has increased probably two hundred percent, and it is daily increasing. But the sale of expensive works, and of library editions of standard authors and costly bindings, is yet more noticeable. Ten years ago such a display of magnificent works as is to be found at the Appletons would have been a precursor of bankruptcy. There was no demand for them. A few dozen, in one little showcase, was the prudent whole. Now, one whole side of an immense store is not only filled with admirably bound library books, but from some inexhaustible source the void continually made in the shelves is at once refilled. A reserve of heroic books supply the places of those that fall. Alas! Where is human nature so weak as in a bookstore? Speak of the appetite for drink, or of a bon vivant's relish for a dinner. What are these mere animal throes and ragings compared with those fantasies of taste, those yearnings of the imagination, those insatiable appetites of intellect, which bewilder a student in a great bookseller's temptation hall. How easily one may distinguish a genuine lover of books from a worldly man! With what subdued and yet glowing enthusiasm does he gaze upon the costly front of a thousand embattled volumes! How gently he draws them down, as if they were little children! How tenderly he handles them! He peers at the title-page, at the text, or the notes, with the nicety of a bird examining a flower. He studies the binding, the leather, Russia, English calf, Morocco, the lettering, the gilding, the edging, the hinge of the cover. He opens it and shuts it. He holds it off and brings it nigh. It suffuses his whole body with book magnetism. He walks up and down in a maze at the mysterious allotments of providence that gives so much money to men who spend it upon their appetites, and so little to men who would spend it in benevolence or upon their refined tastes. It is astonishing, too, how one's necessities multiply in the presence of the supply. One never knows how many things it is impossible to do without, till he goes to Windle's or Smith's house furnishing stores one is surprised to perceive at some bazaar or fancy and variety store how many conveniences he needs he is satisfied that his life must have been utterly inconvenient aforetime and thus too one is inwardly convicted at appleton's of having lived for years without books which he is now satisfied that one cannot live without then too the subtle process by which the man convinces himself that he can afford to buy no subtle manager or broker ever saw through a maze of financial embarrassments half so quick as a poor book-buyer sees his way clear to pay for what he must have. 
he promises himself marvels of retrenchment. He will eat less, or less costly viands, that he may buy more food for the mind. He will take an extra patch, and go on with his raiment another year, and buy books instead of coats. Yea, he will write books, that he may buy books. The appetite is insatiable. Feeding does not satisfy it. It rages by the fuel which is put upon it. As a hungry man eats first and pays afterward, so the book-buyer purchases, and then works at the debt afterward. This paying is rather medicinal. It cures for a time, but a relapse takes place. The same longing, the same promises of self-denial. He promises himself to put spurs on both heels of his industry. And then, besides all this, he will somehow get along when the time for payment comes. Ah, this somehow! That word is as big as the whole world, and it is stifled with all the vagaries and fantasies that fancy ever bred upon hope. And yet, is there not some comfort in buying books, to be paid for? We have heard of a sot who wished his neck as long as the worm of a still, that he might so much the longer enjoy the flavor of the draught. Thus, it is a prolonged excitement of purchase, if you feel for six months in a slight doubt whether the book is honestly your own or not. Had you paid down, that would have been the end of it. There would have been no affectionate and beseeching look of your books at you every time you saw them, saying, as plain as books' eyes can say, Do not let me be taken from you. Moreover, buying books before you can pay for them promotes caution. You do not feel quite at liberty to take them home. You are married. Your wife keeps an account book. She knows to a penny what you can and what you cannot afford. She has no speculation in her eyes. Plain figures make desperate work with airy somehows. It is a matter of no small skill and experience to get your books home and into their proper places, undiscovered. Perhaps the blundering express brings them to your door just at evening. "'What is it, my dear?' she says to you. "'Oh, nothing. A few books that I cannot do without.' That smile. A true housewife that loves her husband can smile a whole arithmetic at him at one look. Of course she insists, in the kindest way, in sympathizing with you in your literary acquisition. She cuts the strings of the bundle, and of your heart, and out comes the whole story. You have bought a complete set of costly English books, full bound in calf, extra gilt. You are caught, and feel very much as if bound in calf yourself, and admirably lettered. Now, this must not happen frequently. The books must be smuggled home. Let them be sent to some near place. Then, when your wife has a headache, or is out making a call, or has lain down, run the books across the frontier and threshold, hastily undo them, stop only for one loving glance as you put them away in the closet, or behind other books on the shelf, or on the topmost shelf. Clear away the twine and wrapping paper, and every suspicious circumstance. Be very careful not to be too kind. That often brings on detection. Only the other day we heard it said, somewhere, Why, how good you have been lately! I am really afraid that you have been carrying on mischief secretly. Our heart smote us. It was a fact. That very day we had bought a few books which we could not do without. 
After a while you can bring out one volume, accidentally, and leave it on the table. Why, my dear, what a beautiful book! Where did you borrow it? You glance over the newspaper, with the quietest tone you can command. That! Oh, that is mine! Have you not seen it before? It has been in the house these two months. And you rush on with anecdote and incident, and point out the binding, and that peculiar trick of gilding, and everything else you can think of. But it all will not do. You cannot rub out that roguish, arithmetical smile. People may talk about the equality of the sexes. They are not equal. The silent smile of a sensible, loving woman will vanquish ten men. Of course you repent, and in time form a habit of repenting. Another method which will be found peculiarly effective is to make a present of some fine work to your wife. Of course, whether she or you have the name of buying it, it will go into your collection, and be yours to all intents and purposes. But it stops a remark in the presentation. A wife could not reprove you for so kindly thinking of her. No matter what she suspects, she will say nothing. And then, if there are three or four more works which have come home with the gift book, they will pass through the favor of the other. These are pleasures denied to wealth and old bachelors. Indeed, one cannot imagine the peculiar pleasure of buying books if one is rich and stupid. There must be some pleasure, or so many would not do it. But the full flavor, the whole relish of delight, only comes to those who are so poor that they must engineer for every book. They sit down before them, and besiege them. They are captured. Each book has a secret history of ways and means. It reminds you of subtle devices by which you insured and made it yours, in spite of poverty. Selected Paragraphs From Selections from the Published Works of Henry Ward Beecher Compiled by Eleanor Kirk An intelligent conscience is one of the greatest of luxuries. It can hardly be called a necessity, or how would the world have got along as well as it has to this day? Sermon, Conscience A man undertakes to jump across a chasm that is ten feet wide, and jumps eight feet, and a kind sympathizer says, What is going to be done with the eight feet that he did jump? Well, what is going to be done with it? It is one of those things which must be accomplished in whole, or it is not accomplished at all. Sermon, The True Value of Morality it is hard for a strong-willed man to bow down to a weak-willed woman. It is hard for an elephant to say his prayers to an ant. Sermon The Reward of Loving When Peter heard the cock crow, it was not the tail-feathers that crew. The crowing came from the inside of the cock. Religion is something more than the outward observances of the church. Sermon, The Battle of Benevolence I have heard men, in family prayer, confess their wickedness, and pray that God would forgive them the sins that they got from Adam. But I do not know that I ever heard a father in family prayer confess that he had a bad temper. I never heard a mother confess in family prayer that she was irritable and snappish. 
I never heard persons bewail those sins which are the engineers and artificers of the moral condition of the family. The angels would not know what to do with a prayer that began, Lord, thou knowest that I am a scold. Sermon Peaceableness Getting up early is venerable. Since there has been a literature or a history, the habit of early rising has been recommended for health, for pleasure, and for business. The ancients are held up to us for examples, but they live so far to the east, and so near the sun, that it was much easier for them than for us. People in Europe always get up several hours before we do, people in Asia several hours before Europeans do, and we suppose, as men go toward the sun, it gets easier and easier, until, somewhere in the Orient, probably they step out of bed involuntarily, or, like a flower blossoming, they find their bedclothes gently opening and turning back, by the mere attraction of light. EYES AND EARS There are some men who never wake up enough to swear a good oath. The man who sees the point of a joke the day after it is uttered, because he is never known to act hastily, is he to take credit for that? Sermon Conscience If you will only make your ideal mean enough, you can, every one of you, feel that you are heroic. Sermon The Use of Ideals there is nothing more common than for men to hang one motive outside where it can be seen, and keep the others in the background to turn the machinery. Sermon Paul and Demetrius Suppose I should go to God and say, Lord, be pleased to give me salad. He would point to the garden and say, There is the place to get salad, and if you are too lazy to work for it, you may go without. Lecture Room Talks, Answers to Prayer God did not call you to be canary birds in a little cage, and to hop up and down on three sticks, within a space no larger than the size of the cage. God calls you to be eagles, and to fly from sun to sun over continents. Sermon, The Perfect Manhood Do not be a spy on yourself. A man who goes down the street thinking of himself all the time, with critical analysis, whether he is doing this, that, or any other thing, turning himself over as if he were a goose on a spit before a fire, and basting himself with good resolutions, is simply belittling himself. Lectures on Preaching Many persons boil themselves down to a kind of molasses goodness. How many there are that, like flies caught in some sweet liquid, have got out at the last upon the side of the cup, and crawl along slowly, buzzing a little to clear their wings. Just such Christians I have seen, creeping up the sides of churches, soul poor, imperfect, and drabbled. All-sidedness in Christian life no man, then, need hunt among hair-shirts. No man need seek for blankets too short at the bottom and too short at the top. No man need resort to iron seats or cushionless chairs. 
No man need shut himself up in grim cells. No man need stand on the tops of towers or columns in order to deny himself. Sermon Problem of Joy and Suffering in Life End of Section 31